All right, so today is one of my, uh, well, a lot of Sundays are some of my favorite Sundays, um, especially this one. So uh, this is called, um, if you didn't hear anything else, if you didn't hear anything else Sunday, and, and the reason is, is because a lot of times in the middle of a sermon somewhere, um, I'll pause and I'll say, you know, if you've checked out, if you're counting the lights or how many, you know, beams exist in this place or what's the average number of, you know, little like dots on one of these LED bars. Um, and I kind of say, kind of come back for a second. And, and if you don't hear anything else, here's the one thing I want you to know. Here's the one thing I want you to know. Here's the one thing I want you to do. Here's the one thing I want you to remember. Here's like, here's kind of the one thing. Everything kind of circles around this idea. Um, and honestly, there's a lot of people who, who communicate, who preach and teach and they teach like 17 things. I've just never thought I'm that good. I always thought, man, I just, I can only say like one thing and have anybody remember it. And so um, that's generally how I tend to focus it. And so this gives us an opportunity um, on a Sunday to pause uh, as we're kind of going to the, the next ministry season. So uh, for us, um, semesters, whether you're in college, whether you're in you know, middle school, high school, uh, whether you're a parent, kind of whatever it is, this kind of marks um, a bit of a transitional season. And so we like to just pause and say, man, if you didn't hear anything else the rest of this year, if this is your first time here, if you've been here a ton of times, you know, no matter where you are, who you are, um, if there's one thing we want you to know, this is the one thing that we want you to know. And it was funny because we didn't necessarily plan it with um, Brittany Story. But Brittany's story is such a great picture and a starting point for this. By the way, can we give a, a hand for a Brittany one more time? So she, uh, she actually knocked that whole thing out first take. So it was like a phenomenal. And usually like, it either takes one take or like 75 takes. Because once you like mess up once, then you mess up like over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, but man, that was just a phenomenal story. And, and the reason why I want to start there is because um, there's this interesting dichotomy that she kind of said that she was caught in. And she didn't say it in these words, but here's kind of the essence of it. Is that we can sing a song like we just sang and say, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you know, um, Come, you know, let us magnify the Lord. And so we kind of get this understanding of the holiness of God and that God is holy. God is other than. In fact, um, one of the things that's interesting is if you read the Bible um, and you, you were to fill in the blank, God is. What is the main thing that the Bible would describe God is? And if you were to ask our culture generally, we would probably say something along the lines of God is love. What the Bible actually says is God is, it's true, he is love. But the primary descriptive idea is God is holy. He's holy. And the reason I think that's a really important place to start off is because the holiness of God is so incredibly valuable and important. And the reason is, and the reason I think we like to go away from kind of the holiness of God is when we talk about the holiness of God, it makes us feel um, unholy, right? It makes us kind of feel like, okay, if God is holy, um, I know pretty well that I am not holy. And so a lot of times it makes me feel bad about me. And so we want to talk about God being a God of love because that makes me feel better often. And here's, here's the point in all that. Is if at any point in time we devalue the holiness of God, we actually by doing that devalue the love of God. That his love is only as substantive as his holiness. Because if God is love and God is holy, then the way that his holiness works with his love, his holiness is the way and the avenue through which his love comes. Let me explain that a little bit. Um, it's not very loving if you, let's say you give me a $5 bill, right? And I said, thanks. I was hoping to eat after this anyways. And then I give you back five ones right? That's an even trade. That's not necessarily loving. What's loving is when you just give me $5 and I didn't do anything to deserve it. Well, so if God is holy, 
then the demonstration of his love is substantive because we are very unholy. And because he is, in other words, the greater the chasm between us and God, the more substantial his love for us is. Because it's not terribly loving if he just gives us what we deserve. That's called fair. But what he gives us is himself. And so the idea behind this then is it's, is it's not that God is holy and God's like, man, I can't believe y'all messed up again. Whew, guess I better send Jesus. Right? It wasn't this like plan B. It wasn't this reactionary. God said, no, 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 no. You need to understand that I'm holy because it's not until you understand that I'm holy and you're not that you understand that there is a need for Jesus, which was the plan the entire time. That when God gave us his son Jesus, it's not that he gave us his son Jesus because he didn't have anything else to do. He gave us his son Jesus so that we could be reconciled to him. Our unholiness, God's holiness. I can be better as a person. I can... I can say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I can attend church. I can sing when the people are doing. I can give a little bit of money to the basket. I can do all of those things. I can pray. I can try to be a good person. But, but I'm still unholy. Well, God knew that, saw that, and gave us the ultimate demonstration of value and worth in saying, and I never expected you to be perfect. But the opposite. I expected you to know and see my son as Savior. And when he died on the cross, it wasn't to make bad people good. It was to make unholy people holy, to bring us from death to life, unforgiven to forgiven. And we receive so much in receiving that. Let me just pause and say this. If your experience with church to this point has been a version of Southern Christianity, which basically said, um, be a good person, mind your manners, read your Bible once a decade, right? Then just, you know, you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You say, well, God, I was a good person and I went to church and I prayed and I, you know, read my Bible once a decade. And it has nothing to do with what we do, but that God gave us himself through the person of Jesus, that God reconciled us to him through the person of Jesus. And now we don't live for God in order to make God happy. Because we have received Jesus and because what Jesus has done with us, God is happy with us, therefore we live for him. We don't try to prove and say, God, if I do this just right, you'll be my father. We say, God, you're, you are my father. And because you are, I want to make my father happy. And proud and do what he says because I trust him and I believe him. And so the reason I start there is because we're going to go to an Old Testament book that I think, an Old Testament story specifically, that I think, I think it's honestly, if, if all of that is true, if God is holy, if God is good, if God has given us Jesus, if we have the most valuable thing that we could ever have because we have God, I think what we do with that is directly paralleled in the story that we're going to read today. And I think there's a lot there for us to think about as we're going forward in life. If you've got your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 25. So Genesis, um, in this particular context, there was a lineage that started to happen. So Genesis, first book of the Bible, this is all before Jesus walked on the scene. But God knew that Jesus was going to walk on the scene. So he, just, he declared it in the garden, and then he declared it to Abraham. 
Now, many of you are familiar with Father Abraham, because Father Abraham had many and many sons had father, and I am, and so are. So let's all. There you go. You got it. So, such good Sunday school folks, especially this crew right here. Is that Mike? He's Pastor Mike, of course. Yep, that's me. <laughs> so, so Abraham got a promise from God, and this was the promise from God. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Abraham, I'm going to give you this inheritance. Abraham, I'm going to do this work. And Abraham, you are going to be my people. You're going to become a great nation. And through you, all of the nations in the world will be blessed. So neighbor Abraham, there's this promise. And through your seed, through your lineage, all of the world will be blessed. Well, Abraham had a son eventually named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons. One son, was, one son was named Jacob, and the other son was named Esau. And in the account of the narrative of their birth, we find out some things about them that's going to play in the immediate um, preceding story. So if you've got your Bible, this is, this is through the lineage, through the promise of Abraham, through Isaac, starting at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, Rebekah, or for his wife, whose name is going to be Rebekah, we're going to find the end of the sentence, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So they're having a difficult time having kids, having a difficult time having kids. And then all of a sudden, as they're praying, he's just saying, praying, saying, God, would you do this? God, would you do this? God, you promised this. It happens. She has kiddos. The children, verse 22, struggled together within her. So we don't really know, like, what is happening right now. Like, they're in the tummy for sure, Right? And there's this, like, like, I seriously doubt that the fetuses, the feti, were, like, have, like, like one was, like, dude, are you serious? And, like, 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 you know, throat chopped the other guy, right? Like, but, like, somehow there's this, like, little thing that's happening. They're kicking a bunch and they're doing a bunch of stuff. And so she's, like, God, what is going on right now? So if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. So she says, man, God, why is this happening? And the Lord said to her, <laughs> get this, imagine, like, you're, like, man, there's a lot of fetal movement, Right? And it seems abnormal. So God, why is this happening? He says, two nations are in your womb. I would be like, what? Right? I thought I had kids. I have nations inside of me. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. And this is a prophecy. He's saying, hey, there's going to be a level of animosity. There's going to be a level of tension. There's going to be two nations. And I know you're one family, but this is going to be divisive. This is not just going to be like, oh, man, look at our kids. And we Instagram on Easter morning. And everybody's in their first, you know, their, their first day of school, last day of school, school pictures. And it's just all, you know, uh, the word I'm thinking is hunky-dory, but that sounds so ridiculous, right? But, like, like it's just so picturesque. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is very different. In their context, they live in a patriarchal society, which meant that the, the oldest son would be the recipient of the primary things of the family, of the blessing of the family, of the birthright of the family. Typically what this meant, and especially what this meant for this family, was that the older would typically be the one who received through the birthright what would be basically a double inheritance. So whatever the younger got, the older was getting double. 
Um, the older would be the leader of the family. And by leader, they would be the one that would decide, okay, we're going to go here, we're going to stay there, we're going to live there. They would also be the one who would be kind of the judicial force in the family. So if at any point two people in the family or some of the extended family were not getting along, what would happen is this oldest son, as the father would pass away, the oldest son would be the one who would say, that is right, that is wrong. They would be the determiner of right and wrong. So they'd have an inheritance, they would lead, they would be the judicial presence, but they would also be, in specific, especially to their family, the one who the things of God, the promises of God, the spiritual leadership would be in flowing through. That the lineage of the Messiah would eventually come through the one who was blessed. But he, God stops and says, hey, I want you to know something. Something's going to be a little bit different about your family. It's not going to be the older son. It's going to be the younger son that this happens to and that this happens through. Now, as you can imagine, at some point that probably made its way out. At some point the kiddos probably knew. And this did not create a small bit of animosity towards their family. In fact, from the get-go, interestingly, um, mom and dad kind of played favorites. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red. All his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Now, I don't know what like embarrassing stories your parents tell of you when you were born, but I think this is really, this is, they're like, man, how would I describe it? The dude's like a bear, right? Like he came out and like, you know, some babies are like, oh my gosh, he has hair already. They're like, oh my gosh, he's a bear already, right? Like, like they said like, man, it's like this, <laughs> how are we going to describe him? It's like a hairy cloak, like a like a rug, or like think of like a robe that was put on with just hair. They're like, you, you sure you had a kid? That's not an alien, right? And so they're looking at him, and so he was described in a particular way that, that this was how he was, and this would kind of be a demarcation of the type of person he was, that he was very much outdoors. He was very much into the wild, very much hunting, very much that type. Afterwards, his brother came out. With his hand holding Esau's heel. So Esau, you know, the young bear, and, and Jacob is coming out behind him, and Jacob's just like holding on to his ankle as it's, or his, his heel as it's happening. So they called him Jacob. Um, now, the interesting thing, a part about that is, is, is the name Jacob. It, it has allusions to kind of like the holding the heel idea, but that was not a compliment in their day. Like right now, if you need somebody named Jacob, you might just call him Jake the Snake, right? But like in their day, when you were called Jacob, it was the sense of like deceiver, deception, um, a trickster type of a thing. And so you've got this, you know, let's say the, the hyper version of the outdoor woodsy born with full chest of hair like Esau, right? And you've got Jacob, who's a little bit more of around the, the, the house type of guy. So when the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac, dad, loved Esau because he ate of his game. He was like, yo, you got any more of that sausage? You know? Like the venison mixed with the registers, right? Like, like, do you like, like, you got some more of that meat, big guy, right? Like, like, so dad's gonna, he's coming in, and dad's like, oh man, I love that dude. He always brings home some killer 
meat. I don't know, like, like, you know, stuff. And so, but then mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob, right? She saw him and he was around the house and he was, you know, around the tents and things like that. And she was like, that's my dude. You know, he's, you know, okay, sure, dad, you can eat, but somebody in this family is finally helpful, right? And so she loves Jacob. Now, it continues on. So once, as this all the context in the backdrop, when Jacob was cooking stew, which is like classic, right? Can you, like, I don't know anybody that's like, man, you know what I did the other day? Cook some killer stew. Maybe that is you, and that's interesting. So Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. He walks in, and he's like, yo, oh, you got that red stew? Yeah, let me get some red stew. And he looks at him, and he says, you know, because I'm exhausted. Now, now there's, this, there's this idea of not just being, like, exhausted, but, like, exhausted, almost like famished type thing as he's looking at his, his brother, as he's looking at Jacob. And he says, man, like, let me get some stew. And so Jacob realizes this is an opportunity. that He's got a little bit of leverage in this conversation and negotiation. He says, therefore, his name was called Edom, which I think is, let me just pause. This is why I love the Bible. So Edom, the idea or the name of Edom, uh, basically means uh, it sounds like the Hebrew word for red, right? And so he's eating stew that looks red. From then on, he started to make fun of him and call him Edom, which means that when you read the Bible from here on out and they talk about the Edomites, it's a sarcastic nickname making fun of a bad decision that Esau made at one point in time. I'm like, I love the fact that they're sarcastic. And they're like, henceforth, you are going to be called a sarcastic, degrading nickname. It's like third grade. So Jacob, realizing that he had some leverage in this negotiation, said, he said, sell me your birthright now. <laughs> like Esau was like, What? Sell me your birthright right now. So Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me? People will say different things about this. Some folks will say that when he said this, the idea and the concept behind it was like he was, he was in such hunger, such desperation that he was legitimately about to die. But most people think it's not that because they grew up in a fairly wealthy family. They grew up with a lot around. And it seemed more along the lines of he just, he had this temporal like desire, this temporal need that needed to be satisfied. And so what he did is he looked and he saw that he has a birthright and he says he's really hungry. And he does what, what is kind of common, frankly, that the things that we have, we don't see as that special because they kind of normalize. Right? You used to have a phone, and it was awesome, and then it became normal, especially when somebody else got a better one. You're like, ah, my phone's all right. You had a car, and at first you're like, I have a car. And then it's like, man, I don't know that I think this car is as cool as it used to be. But things that we have, that we possess, that we feel like we are rightly ours, oftentimes normalize over time. They begin to devalue over time. And then there's a need or a desire or an appetite that, pre that, that presents itself. And so he looks and he says, Man, I am really hungry. I'm about to die. And what use is a birthright to me? In other words, man, why is that even important? Why is that even important now? Well, we would pause and say, well, it's of massive importance. A huge amount of value. 
just monetarily, not including spiritually, not including judicially, not including the leadership and the influence that you'll have with your family. I mean, what value is it up to you? It's of the greatest value. But nonetheless, so Jacob said, so swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So then Jacob gave Esau bread in lentil stew. I love that it paused and it's like, just to be clear, that junk was lentils. Like it wasn't even like a solid chicken noodle. It was just lentil, like it's beans, right? Like for a bowl of beans. And what's interesting here is, is people will call this like he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. And I'm like, man, like, like it's crazy if we were to think about that, right? We're, we look at this and we think, okay, he sold um, his Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. So he gave up the most valuable thing that he had because of the fact that he just had this appetite that seemed more pressing at the time. And he devalued what he had. He, he, he multiplied the value of what he didn't have, and he made the greatest probable compromise of his entire life. And here's why I say that. As much as we would look at this and say, this is ridiculous, what I find is that this is so telling of us. And not only us, but especially as you continue on in life. Right? Like, like we know that the greatest thing that we have is God. We know that the greatest thing, the greatest value that we have is this holy God who we have been reconciled with, that we on this planet, on this earth, now have a relationship with God. We can spend time with God. We can have communion with God. We can know the creator of all things, be reconciled to him, that he didn't just come that we would have life in the next life. He did come for that, but he, made, he came that we would have life more abundantly here. And not only that, but then after this life, we have eternity with him. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, man, how often do we compromise in such a way that we trade the Lord for some lentils? Uh, when we first had kids, we used to take them to Target all the time. Well, not all the time. We learned our lesson. Because <laughs> they want everything. Um, and there are times that we're good parents. And there are times where we're resourceful parents. This is a story about resourcefulness. Okay, I wouldn't subscribe to this idea. But we used to take them to Target, and um, you know how it is, parents. Like, you go, and you're buying a bunch of stuff, and they're like, can I get it, can I get it, can I get it? And so we tell them, you know, what everybody, you know, or not every parent, but what some parents tell, which is, you know, all right, you guys can pick out one thing, one thing. Now, when I used to be little and I used to pick out one thing when we'd go to Publix, it would be like they had this, like, little wall of one things that you could buy, um, and they were all, like, 75 cents. The problem at Target is they have, like, toy aisles. So when you tell your kid you can buy one thing, they inevitably go towards the most expensive thing that there possibly is there, right? And so you can get one thing. They're like, here's this $65 doll. Can I have this? I'm like, no, right? Like, like what about gum? Can we use some gum here, you know? But it's funny because, like, so you learn to kind of like, I'm going to just call it, you learn to like Jacob, your children, okay? So it's like, so it's like, oh, look at this doll. It's got all this stuff. It's like a million dollars. And you're like, yo, but have you seen this bouncy ball? 
look, it's got colors, right? Oh, check this out. It'll bounce. Boom, boom, you know? And then you start to like, you know, like Steph Curry, and you're like, oh, oh, look, buddy, you know? And he's like, Dad, you can do that? I'm like, no, I can't. I just do it on stage and pretend like I can, right? <laughs> and it's funny because like we, like we try to like, you know, kind of like con our kids or you don't maybe try to con your kids, but we try to con our kids and we're like, yo, I'm not going to pay $75 for a doll. You like how this price keeps going up and up and up, right? A million dollars later, this doll. And so like we try we, and, we, and we like sell all like the benefits of this little like toy, this little like ball. It's like it bounces and it's rubber or plastic or something. And if it pops then you've got a, something you could put on your head. I don't know, you know, like, look at the cool things of this thing. And it's funny because, again, I, I, I just think that, like, sometimes in life and spiritually, and I say sometimes, oftentimes in life and spiritually, we're like a little kid at Target who doesn't know any better. And, and in this illustration, the enemy is just sitting there saying, okay, you have this thing of incomprehensible worth, this thing that's so incredibly valuable, but have you seen this little toy? Have you, have, have you seen this relationship that you could have? Come on. You, you, have, have you seen it? Because it's, it's nice, and, and, and they like you. And you haven't, somebody made, you haven't had somebody else that made you feel good about you in a while. And I know that you're kind of lonely right now, and you're in a new city, and it's tough. So come on. Here's this bouncy ball. Or, hey, I know, I, I know gospel to the nations and, 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 and helping, you know, the, the great commission of going there for and making disciples of all nations. And I know that I've placed you in a particular place, in a particular space to be Jesus to the people around you. But come on, come on, come on. Look, look, look. If you do that, you might not get a promotion. They might not think you're weird. Come on, come on. Here's your career. Chase your career instead of the God of glory. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that you have been called to be generous with what you have. And I know in college you kind of justified it because you didn't have anything, so you didn't think it mattered that much, although Jesus would say otherwise. But come on, like I know you have, but come on, like you need to build up. You need to build up, not just for your retirement, but like you need to see how many dead presidents you can accumulate in your bank account and you'll be valuable because of it. Look, look at this ball. And so as I was thinking about this Sunday, about if you didn't hear anything else, here's, here's the thing I want you to hear. Here's the thing I want you to know. That you have a God who so loves you. He gave his life for you. You have a God who so loves you. He gave his life for you, and, and not because you're special, but because he is. And because of that we have the most incredible thing in Jesus. We have the most incredible opportunity to know God, to make him known in why we're on this planet to live by faith. To live by faith, by that I mean we an active trust of God. I trust this is better. I know this is better, and I'm going to live for you because of it. And I just think, man, how many of us, the truth is, is we have this thing of incredible value. And we've traded the Savior for stew. We've traded the Lord for lentils. And we've traded the immeasurable God for this little bouncy ball. Because we have an, ap an appetite and a desire. And what I feel about the story, again, is this. The appetite was normal. Right? You wouldn't look at it and be like, I can't believe you were hungry. It's ridiculous. 
It was the immediate pressingness of which he desired to satiate that need and that appetite that he made a terrible decision. And as much as I would like to say it's even like the the macro, that this is what's going to happen a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, here's here's why I really got convicted in this whole thing. And, And this is just me being honest about my life. I thought, God, it's so easy for me to say this and to preach this. But in reality, the seeds of it for many of us are already in our lives. And I can see the seeds of it already in my life. In other words... One of the things that's so easy to devalue because of the fact that we have access to it and it normalizes is that every day, every day, we have opportunity to spend time with God. Right? I mean, like every day I have a time, this opportunity to spend time talking to him through prayer and just saying, God, you are in heaven, you know, holy heavenly father, hallowed heavenly father, you know, holy is your name, God. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, what you want before what I want. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. So God, just give me today what I need, my daily bread. Right? And I have an opportunity every day to go talk to God. I have an opportunity every single day to, to spend time with God, for him to speak to me, one, just in prayer by listening, but also through his word, right? Um, the, the, the spirit of God spoke the words of scripture that we now have. And so when we hear these things, we can see and we can know God and we can hear from God through his word. So I have time every single day to spend time with God. but have you seen this new Netflix show? I know you want to spend time on my word, but there's this dope new game called Wordle. (laughs) And if you work real hard and think really creatively, you can solve it in three tries, not four. And then you know what you can do? You're not going to believe this. You can screenshot it. (laughs) Send it to your buddies, right? And say, look at my intellectual eliteness. I really don't want to know. Like, I would love if somehow, like, I hope, I, hope in, I hope God keeps a lot of data. And someday in heaven I can be like, God, so for that period that Wordle was cool, how much more time did the people of God spend time in Wordle than it did in your Word? I'm like, God, I actually don't want to know the answer to that question because that's, I feel like, going to be defeating. But at the same time, like, I do, you know? Here's why I say all this. The seeds of future compromise are almost always in our hearts at this current moment. And it's the decision now to say, God, I am not going to trade you, the Lord, for a bowl of lentils. I am not going to trade my Savior for stew. I am not going to trade my birthright for a bowl of beans. God, I want you, and I want to know you no matter what. And almost as a point of warning, I love how this verse ends. It says this, So Jacob gave Esau bread, Lentil stew, he ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Thus, Esau, the older brother, the one who gave it away, thus Esau despised his birthright. Here's what I know to be true. And I don't say this with any sense of joy. Is that some of us will we will decide our way out of a relationship, out of an active relationship with Jesus. We will decide, 
compromise. We will decide stew and lentils over Savior and Lord. And I'm just saying this because I have seen it before. And I, I pray that I don't see it again, but it's the inevitability. Because compromise is, to a degree, human. If we don't begin to catch this, it becomes a thing. But what happens is, is that over time, over decisions, as we trade you know, our Savior for a bowl of stew, we begin to despise the one that we once worshipped. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to think. And, and honestly, I, I say this in full confidence, but I hope and pray it's not true that there is, I think, inevitably somebody in this room or somebody's in this room who worships God right now and through the spirit of compromise and consistently doing that, there will come a time in your life where you will begin to not simply not love, not serve, not worship, but actually despise the one that you worshiped. Think back about this point in time in your life and you will just think, man, I got it wrong. And I despise that time. And I hope that's not true. But I've seen it be true over and over and over again. And so I don't want to end it like, so you're all going to die, right? But at the same time, I do think the warning is, is there and it's real. That as you, as you move away from God the things of God begin to remind you of some things about yourself, and then you start to try to push that away further and further and further. And it doesn't happen immediately, but over a little bit of time, there's some distance, and over a little bit of time, there's some resentment, and over a little bit of time, there's some pushback, and then resentment builds walls, and then walls over time make me feel like I despise that. But here's the opportunity that we have to every single day Spend time with God. To every single day, spend say, God, you are the greatest thing. God, you are the best thing. God, you are Lord. God, you are Savior. I get you, and if I get you, I don't need anything else. I don't care what city. I don't care what place. I don't care what space. And I don't care if your next week means that you're in Denver or your next, next week means that you're on, on Dent Street in Tallahassee. I don't care if next week you are in Tallahassee or you are in I don't know, Talladega. I don't know, right? Like, like Tennessee, perhaps, you know, Tuscany. That would be sweet. Um, like, I don't care where you are. What I know to be true is this. We all have the tendency to trade our birthright for a bowl of beans, for the Lord for lentils, our Savior for some stew, trade the incomprehensible, ultimate and infinite God, the eternal God, for temporal satisfaction. And the primary way people move from faith to no faith is very rarely intellectually, and it's very oftentimes behaviorally. Not every time, but most times. And resentment builds. That doesn't have to be true of you. So if you didn't hear anything else, hear this. If you ever get to that point, if you ever get to that point, and you feel like God is too far away, that you have gone to, that you used to know him, used to love him, and he is too disappointed with you. I simply want you to remember this, that it was never you that made you right with God in the first place. It was God the entire time. There's nothing that you can do to outrun the love of God. There's nothing you can do to outdisappoint the love of God, that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me while we were still sinners, and it is never too late. But you don't have to go through hell on earth to come to that realization. Because what happened with Esau 
is Esau later on begged and pleaded with his father and it destroyed his family when he did not get his father's blessing. He realized it. But he also had to live with the consequences of life, the decisions that he made in the process. I pray that we don't have to do that. But if you do, know that there is a God who loves you so much, he gave his son to die for you and it has nothing to do with you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to know you and to be known by you. God, I ask and I pray that for all of us, whenever we come to that juncture in life, we find ourselves trading you, the infinite God, the eternal God for temporal satisfaction and need, the infinite God for our imminent appetite, the Lord for lentils, our Savior for stew. God, I pray that you would drill into us the knowledge that you are so much more valuable, of so much more worth, that we know you and we get God. And God, I pray for anybody, maybe, maybe they're, in, they're in this season right now where they've run from you, distanced from you, and a part of it is the wall that they've built up to you, wanting to distance from you. They become disinterested. And God, ultimately, despised. That they would know that the love of God, your love for them, was never contingent on them. In so many ways, it was in spite of them. And in so many ways, it was demonstrated because of them. That you gave your life to us and for us so that we, cannot, so we can know you. Not because we are good. Not because we have done right. Not because we have prioritized you. But because of your holiness, that was the incredible demonstration of your love for us and we get you. And so I pray right now for the person who goes through this in a week from now or a month from now or a year from now or a decade from now. And they come to the realization that they are now despising God. But they come to the realization, I don't want to live this life anymore. That they would know that this moment when they worshipped you, this moment when they glorified you, had nothing to do with them, but everything to do with you, Jesus. And the love that's available today will be the love that's available to them. But God, I pray that you don't have to, that they don't have to go through hell on earth to come to that realization. That they don't have to live with the scars and the difficulty and the life of heartache and disappointment to come to the realization you were the thing and the one our hearts were longing for the entire time. So God, I pray you would help each and every one of us to daily seek you and not this meaningless, trivial bowl of stew that our lives are so easily patterned after. And it's in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.